0: Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. We went to the local high school. They had an instant dislike. <laughs> you never walk by yourself as a, as a woman, as a girl, young girl. You, we never walked by ourselves because you never knew what was going to happen. It was always that fear, you know, that there was always, we were always on guard. Um, as to, you know, when the next uh, trauma was going to hit, so... Long before the coming of Europeans, the area around La was a gathering place for Aboriginal people. There has been continuous habitation in that area for the last 5,000 years, and its name reflects its Aboriginal history as well as its geography. Way up north in Manitoba, the Saskatchewan River separates the town of the Paw from the main part of the Paw Indian Reserve. But the division in the community was more than geographical in 1971. The Paw was divided into two parts, one white and one Aboriginal. Few Aboriginal persons were employed in town. It remained largely non-Aboriginal, and it's easy to conclude that the town of the Paw deliberately had excluded Aboriginal people from its midst. Yet, it depended on them as consumers and customers. While there was some superficial communication, the communities might as well have been worlds apart. Neither community encroached far into the life of the other or felt welcome in it. There appear to have been few who visited in the homes of the other community, Apparently, part of this estrangement was due to the general difference in economic status. It was also due to the fact that the lifestyles and interests of each were basically different. Members of each community were clearly identifiable to the other, and skin color immediately seemed to raise stereotypical feelings, or fear, suspicion, and dislike. These attitudes existed in both communities in 1971, and to an extent still exists today. In 1971, at a movie theater, each group sat on its own side. In at least one of the bars, natives were not allowed to sit in certain areas, and in the lunchroom, the two groups, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, ate apart. Even in the homes where Aboriginal students boarded there was separation, the students had no input into where they would stay, Although the intent in placing these children in community homes was to give them a home environment, it's believed that the students were treated like boarders and not like family members. They were usually restricted to the use of the kitchen and their bedroom. Often they weren't allowed to watch television, and when the people with whom they boarded had children, they usually were treated very differently from those children. It was clear that while relations between members of the two communities generally were civil this civility was only superficial. People might chat or exchange pleasantries, but when it came to a closer social interaction, it was apparent that the two communities were far apart. Furthermore, racial harmony in the pond in 1971 was not aided by the RCMP. Although 98% of the people in the rural detachment area were Aboriginal, and although the non-Aboriginal members of the rural detachment regularly visited reserve communities, they were too busy to socialize or to get to know and understand those living in the aboriginal communities. There can be no question that the RCMP discriminated when dealing with aboriginal people in Nepal in 1971. Stories of aboriginal people being stopped by the police for no apparent reason, and at times aboriginal students were stopped when walking on the street and required to account for their actions. The same inquiries were not made of white students. This discriminatory conduct was probably so inbred in the officers that they didn't notice that their conduct displayed prejudice and discrimination. Citizens have the right to walk the streets without being stopped by the police because of their race or color. It's discriminatory to stop and question an aboriginal youth who's just walking down the street, but not stop a white youth in the same situation. This differential treatment demonstrates the RCMP allowed their behavior to be influenced by racial stereotyping. Officers had heard stories about white men throwing aboriginal men off the bridge into the Saskatchewan River. Since no one ever complained to the RCMP, the stories were never investigated. A number of officers were aware of white youths cruising the town, attempting to pick up aboriginal girls for drinking parties and for sex. It was not the RCMP's practice to stop the cars to see if the girls were of age or if they were going willingly. Officers at the time felt there was nothing they could do because they assumed the girls involved were of age and were willing participants. We now know that this was a mistaken assumption. Police should not simply investigate crime, they should prevent it. That... The allegations were not investigated lends credence to suggestions the RCMP were less than diligent when Aboriginal interests were involved back in the early 1970s. The RCMP failed to act to protect Aboriginal community members when it should have. The racism that these examples illustrate is not the active or violent racism which has led to race riots in some communities. It is rather a passive racism or lack of concern based on ignorance and lack of understanding of the other community. It results not in active expressions of a racist incentive, but in a failure to act when all indications suggest that action is required. It was into this town that Helen Betty Osborne was forced to move in order to pursue her dream of becoming a teacher and helping her people those dreams were shattered on a cold morning in November of 1971, and we are going to look back into the events surrounding Betty's death and the impact that it had on Manitobans, which was far more reaching than anyone could have imagined. So please, don't leave me. At 6 p.m. on Friday, November 12, 1971, Betty Osborne arrived home for supper with Patricia Benson. Betty was staying with them while she attended her studies. An hour later, she went to St. Anthony's Hospital to visit a friend. There, she met George Ross, an old friend, whom she had known from her childhood visits to Cross Lake. Betty phoned Patricia to ask if she could bring George home for a visit. Patricia agreed that Betty could have company over. George and Betty brought some beer, and together they went to Patricia's home and sat talking and drinking. At 8 p.m. that same evening, Lee Colgan borrowed his father's car, a white 1967 two-door Chrysler, and went driving around the Paw. He picked up James Houghton and Norman Manger. The men purchased beer and continued to drive around the town. After the beer was finished, they broke into a friend's apartment and took some fortified wine. At 10 p.m., When Patricia told Helen and George that the party was over, they finished up their drinks and then Helen asked if she could go to the store with George, and Patricia agreed. Betty and George went to the downtown area of the Paw. She passed by the lobby of the Cambrian Hotel, where she saw her boyfriend, Cornelius Spaghetti, with some of his friends. At this time, around 11 p.m., Betty and Cornelius argued because he was with another woman. This argument is important to note because once Betty did not arrive home safely by the early morning, he was considered a person who may have been involved in her disappearance. At 11.10, Betty and her friend George left the hotel lobby and went to the Northern Light Cafe, where they sat with other friends. It was during this time that Lee, James, and Norman were looking for more excitement The three men visited the dance at the Legion, where they drank beer with some other men in the washroom. The three returned to the car and continued cruising. It's assumed during this time they picked up Dwayne Johnston. James was driving. Norman was in the passenger side of the front seat, Lee behind James, and Dwayne was seated behind manger. By this time, intoxicated and lit up, they had formed a common plan to find an Indian girl with whom to drink and have sex. Back at the cafe, George and Betty and two of their friends, Eva Simpson and Marion Osborne, went to a shed in Patricia Benson's yard where they drank beer. Shortly after midnight, first Marion and Eva, then George and Betty, left the shed to return to the downtown area of the Paw. At 12.30... George left Betty and went home. Betty was seen passing the Cambrian Hotel at 12.45, and later seen at a dance at the Legion at approximately 2 a.m. At 2.15, in the early morning of Saturday, November 13th, Rebecca Ross, a longtime friend, saw Betty walking west on Edward Street away from the dance. Apart from her killers... She was the last person to see Betty Osborne alive. Driving along 3rd Avenue, the cruisers saw a lone native female walking. This is close to where Betty was last seen. It was James who pulled the car alongside and then stopped beside her. None of the occupants of the car recognized the woman as Betty Osborne. They considered her only as a lone female walking along the street at night, and as she was native, she was easy prey for the drunk and seeking trouble. Although Betty had consumed some beer during the evening, her judgment was in no way affected. She didn't want to accompany the men and made this very clear. Her conduct showed that she did not wish to get in the car with the four. Repeating she was not interested and looking straight ahead, walking briskly avoiding eye contact. It's absolutely certain she was an unwilling participant of the events of the night. Yet, the men attempted to convince Osborne to go and party with them. She refused and Norman opened the door to let Dwayne out of the car. Duane then pushed Betty into the car and she was driven away. James drove 24 kilometers to his parents' cabin at Clearwater Lake. Confined in the back seat of the car between Dwayne and Lee, Betty was assaulted, sexually and physically. The two men ripped her blouse and grabbed at her breasts. At the cabin, Betty was dragged from the car and attacked by Dwayne, while the others stood around drinking and watching. Lee Colgan later admitted that he'd assisted Dwayne when he was beating Betty, At the Houghton cabin. When they became concerned that others in the area might hear her screams, Dwayne and Lee forced her back into the car. James drove several kilometers farther away from town in the direction of the Guy Hill Residential School along Provincial Highway 287. He arrived at the pump house where the final assault and the murder were committed. There, Dwayne alone pulled Betty from the car and committed the final assault upon her while the other three sat in the car and continued to drink. Lee claims while he, Norman, and James were sitting and drinking in the car he could hear her banging against the side of the rear of the car. Lee claims that he assumed Betty was being beaten. After five to ten minutes the banging stopped. At some point James got out of the car at this time Betty was still alive. The dome light in the car came on as James left the car and Lee is to have said I got a fast glimpse of her and I don't think she had very many clothes left on. Lee further suggested that after some minutes Duane returned to the car leaving James outside with Betty. Duane, having found a screwdriver under the front seat once more left the car. Shortly after this, Lee climbed over the front seat into the driver's seat and turned the car around. He claims he called out twice to James and Dwayne that he was leaving. After the second time, Lee said he heard the response. Just a minute. Soon after this, Dwayne and James returned to the car and one of them announced, she's dead. Lee drove away from the murder scene back along Highway 287 toward town. The screwdriver was wiped off and thrown from the car. When the men reached the Paw, Lee and James claimed they went back to the dance at the Legion where they stayed for perhaps half an hour. Investigators don't believe that they did. It's more likely the dance was over by this time. Regardless, They agreed that night to keep it quiet. The next morning, Lee washed blood off the back of the car and, looking inside, noticed a small stain on the back seat. The four made a pact not to speak about Osborne's murder. Her body was discovered the next morning, and the RCMP commenced its investigation. Initial police efforts centered on the possibility that Osborne's murder was one of her friends or was known to them. RCMP officers rounded up her friends and questioned them. They were all Aboriginal. Betty Osborne's body was found approximately 23 meters into the bush adjacent to the pump house at Clearwater Lake. The evidence showed that she had first lain to the west of some mounds of earth... 12 meters from the edge of the bush. She was then dragged further into the bush, to the place where she was found. The lack of any melting of the snow at this point suggests that Osborne was already dead when she was left there. The photographs and descriptions given by a number of witnesses make it clear that Betty Osborne suffered a vicious beating, particularly to her face. This occurred either during the venting of some unimaginable fury or with the intent of making her identification impossible. Her clothing, other than her boots, were removed and hidden over 30 meters away. They were below some rocks on the breakwater which extends some 45 meters out into the lake. Obviously, her boots must have been off at one point and then put on again, Whoever murdered her acted in a brutal and bizarre fashion. The autopsy report adds some details to what was obvious. Along with well over 50 stab wounds, her skull, cheekbones, and palate were broken. Her lungs were damaged, and one kidney was torn. Her body showed extensive bruising. The massive number of puncture wounds to the head and torso confirmed other evidence that was presented at trial. It suggested that a screwdriver was at least one of the weapons used. The other weapon or weapons, presumably, were hands or feet or some other blunt instrument. It's impossible to conclude from the condition of the body whether more than one sharp object, such as another screwdriver, was used or exactly what else caused the injuries. Nor is it possible to say with absolute certainty about what point during her violation Betty died. The autopsy did show that Betty had not been raped during her ordeal. The investigation of the murder by the RCMP seems to have had three stages. The first, which lasted from the discovery of Betty's body until the end of 1972, Was a period of considerable activity during which the four suspects were identified. The first phase came to a close at the end of 1972 when the police concluded they were unable to gather enough evidence to lay charges. The second phase lasted from 1973 until 1983, although the file was reviewed from time to time and Lee Colgan and Norman Manger were interviewed occasionally. Not much was accomplished during this period. The file appears to have remained essentially dormant. The third phase began in 1983 with Constable Robert Urbanowski's review of the file. He re-interviewed all of those previously questioned. On June 12th of 1985, he placed an article in the Apasquia Times which resulted in the discovery of new and incriminating evidence. When Lee Colgan was charged on October 3rd, 1986, extensive news media coverage throughout Western Canada resulted in further evidence coming to light. Dwayne Johnston was charged on October 27, 1986. In March 1987, when Lee Colgan offered to give evidence in return for immunity from prosecution, the police were able to charge James Houghton. While the investigation appears to have been followed with enthusiasm in the first phase, it seems that an enthusiasm waned rather quickly. The fact that in the third phase, Urbanowski completed the investigation with some alacrity causes us to question why the RCMP allowed the case to slip from attention at the end of 1972. The advertising used in 1985 could have been undertaken as easily as in 1972. It may be that the young witnesses might not have responded at that time, but the effort could have been made. Despite the flagging attention of the RCMP, the major cause of the 16-year delay does not appear to have been lack of police activity. The simple fact is that this was a difficult case to bring to court. The RCMP had two detachments in the PAW at the time of the murder. The rural detachment consisted of nine officers, and the town detachment had 13. Both fell under the Dauphin Subdivision, which provided detachments with support services including identification services, a general investigative section member, and a plainclothes officer. Another GIS member, as well as another plainclothes officer stationed at Thompson, were also available to the PAW. The rural detachment of the RCMP was in charge of the investigation. It would appear that the rural detachment made extensive and appropriate use of resources and the personnel that was available to it. Hundreds of officers worked on the file over the years, more than fifty in the first year alone. Urbanowski gave a list of twenty-nine officers who worked on the case in the PAW in the first year of the investigation. Officers across the country also worked on the file, checking cars, doctors, hospitals, and lists of suspects, as well as performing other investigative tasks. During the beginning of the investigation, 14-year-old Kenneth Garba, his father Stephen, and Danny Yakowichuk arrived at the pump house on Clearwater Lake to go fishing on Saturday, November 13th. They arrived between 9 and 10 a.m. and they set up on the shore at the end of the breakwater at the pump house. Having tried fishing, the boy wandered off into the bush looking for rabbits. At approximately 11.30 a.m., he was returning to the parking area around the pump house when he noticed something in the bush. The bush was too thick to allow him to discern what it was that he had glimpsed. So he went out to the parking area and then back in from another direction. There, he discovered the body of Betty Osborne. He informed his father, and they went to the nearby airport to call police. If it had not been for young Garba's chance stroll, it's likely Osborne's body would not have been discovered until the following spring. Indeed, it might never have been found." Kenneth Gerba and his father returned from the airport accompanied by Sergeant Staff Robert Ayers, an RCMP pilot in charge of the Air Division stationed there. Ayers later testified that when he entered the bush, he did so by walking in the boy's footprints. After viewing the body, he sent the Gerbas back to the airport to call the RCMP detachment in the Paw. He then awaited the arrival of other officers. Sergeant Larry Grosnick, an officer with 20 years of service, was then in charge of the rural detachment at the PAW. He arrived at the scene accompanied by Constable Ken Morrison. By 1.45 p.m., more officers had arrived, including John Fitzmaurice, the head of the General Investigative Section in Dauphin. Harold Beilert, the identification specialist from Dolphin. As well as Thomas Boyle and Donald Knight from the Paw Rural Detachment, the officers from Dolphin, Fitzmaurice, and Byler happened to be in the Paw investigating other matters. Grossnick, as the senior officer, took charge of the investigation. Knight was placed in charge of recording the scene and collecting the physical evidence. Byler was given the responsibility of taking photographs and measurements. Boyle was placed in charge of the body at 4.03 p.m., and it was moved to the morgue at St. Anthony's Hospital in the Paw. According to Boyle's records, 31 persons, including taxi drivers and residents of the Paw Reserve, attempted to identify the body between 5.15 p.m. and 4.05 a.m. of the next day. None was able to do so. At 9.55 p.m. on November 13th, William Benson, at whose house Osborne was boarding, came to the morgue, but he could not identify her positively because of the condition of her battered body. Earlier that day, William had reported Osborne missing. When he was unable to identify her at the morgue, the police went to his home, and they took fingerprints from one of her school books. Using those fingerprints, at ten minutes after midnight on November 14th, 1971, The police positively identified the body of Betty Osborne. Meanwhile, the police had been continuing their work at the murder scene. 36 exhibits were gathered at the murder scene, and about 120 photographs were taken. Blood samples were taken and analyzed. Footprints were examined, photographed, and compared. The imprints left by the tires of an automobile also were examined and photographed. The whole area was measured and mapped. Some criticism was leveled at the manner in which the evidence at the scene was preserved and gathered. Violert had been in the paw taking photographs of the suspected drug trafficker. The equipment that he brought with him from Dauphin for that purpose was not well suited to taking photographs of footprints and tire tracks in the snow. Because his camera was not equipped with a built-in light meter, he failed to adjust for the fading light, and did not use a flash to illuminate the area. Consequently, some of the photographs lacked detail. Beilert maintained that the footprints themselves, because of the snow conditions, were not good enough to serve for identification purposes. Because of the poor quality of the photographs, it couldn't be verified. The photographic record of the footprints could have been much better. Bylart also failed to record carefully all the footprints which were at the scene. While he traced all those leading from the pump house to the place where Betty's body had first been placed in the snow, he did not clearly record the footprints on each side of the drag marks from that spot to the final resting place. Neither did Bylart map the path used by Kenneth Gorba and Staff Sergeant Ayers when they viewed Osborne's body. These oversights were crucial and ultimately detrimental to the prosecution. It is possible that a better record of the tracks and footprints at the scene would have given the police and any prospective judge or jury some help in reconstructing the sequence of events at the murder scene. The incomplete mapping of the scene clearly caused confusion at the trial, particularly over the question of whether one or two people were involved in moving the body. Other physical evidence was found at 1.15 p.m. on November 13th, the same day as the murder. A passing motorist picked up a screwdriver that he found in the middle of the highway a few hundred yards west of the pump house road. The screwdriver has not been linked directly to the murder, but on November 14th, Constable Don Knight retrieved a pair of gloves, two pieces of a brassiere, and a blood-stained paper bag from the ditch on the north side of the same highway. Later that same day, a police dog discovered another screwdriver. This one, blood-stained and presumed to be the murder weapon, close to where the gloves and the brassiere had been found earlier. Seven months later, in June 1972, a local resident walking her dog discovered Betty's glasses in the ditch on the South Highway 287. It was close to the turn-off of the Houghton Cottage. With the initial stages completed, the search for the murderer began. Much of the RCMP's early attention was focused on Betty's Aboriginal friends, but other leads were pursued as well. Because the Paw was a town with a large transient population, the investigation involved hundreds of police all across the country checking out people who had left the town shortly after the murder. The viciousness of the crime suggested to police that the murderer or murderers might have been drunk or drugged. The police also suspected that Betty might have fallen victim to someone with a history of violent or sexual attacks. The Crime Scene Index section in Winnipeg conducted a search of its records for persons who may have committed similar crimes. The RCMP checked local beer vending outlets Hotel and motel registers, as well as the employment and welfare records. They also checked with federal and provincial corrections departments to see if any dangerous prisoners had escaped recently. All the information gathered was examined by the Crime Index section to see if any likely suspects had been in the PAW at the time of the murder. The owners of the cottages close to the scene were contacted to ascertain if they had seen anything which might assist the investigation. Within three days of the murder, a circular had been sent to the police departments across the country. Over a thousand persons were checked before the year had ended, and all were eliminated from suspicion. From the outset, the RCMP attempted to trace Betty Osborne's movements in the hours before her death. They interviewed her friends and others who may have seen her that night. The RCMP were aware that the possibility existed that Betty had been murdered by friends or acquaintances. No links to the murderers were uncovered in those interviews. Indeed, all of Betty's friends and acquaintances were eliminated quickly from suspicion. A number of what turned out to be false leads consumed some of the time of the RCMP... A blood-stained shirt had been found along the highway to the pump house. The size of the shirt, and the fact it was rather dirty, led police to suspect that a person unkempt in appearance, slim build, and then the 135 to 150 pound bracket might have committed the murder. The shirt, the origin of which was never traced, is now believed to have no relation to the murder. Police also spent time attempting to trace the origin of the screwdriver, which had been found along the highway near the pump house. The screwdriver, picked up by a passing motorist the day of the murder, had a name which appeared to be Hansen or Ranson, or something similar engraved in it. The owner of the screwdriver, which has never been ruled out as a possible murder weapon, could not be traced. One person came forward and told police in the PAW that she had seen a woman kill Betty Osborne. After this story was proved to be false, two other rumors surfaced. One suggested that Betty had been killed by three or four girls, and that another had said she had been killed by a lunatic who was passing through town. A fourth rumor later suggested that a person who committed suicide had left a note naming the three murderers. All of these rumors were checked and found to be groundless, but were a great distraction to the investigation. The four men who Betty Osborne encountered early in the morning of November 13th in 1971 came from diverse backgrounds. Lee Colgan was an 18-year-old student at Margaret Barber Collegiate, who worked part-time at a local clothing store. He lived at home with his parents. His father managed the government liquor store, and his mother was a music teacher. They were respected members of the community. An RCMP officer who knew Lee Colgan said of him, On the surface, Colgan appears to be a quiet, polite young adult. However, I found him always to be calculating, as if he was concerned just what he could get away with. When he's drinking, Lee's bad side begins to show. He'll do almost anything that comes to his head as a good idea at the time, after which he always appears to be sorry for his actions. Across the street from the Colgans was the home of salesman Frank Houghton and his family. In November of 1971, James Houghton was 23 years old and lived at home while attending a technical school. The Houghtons and the Colgans had both had cottages at Clearwater Lake, and Houghton had babysat Lee Colgan as a child. Despite the difference in their ages, they were friends. Another friend of Houghton's was Norman Manger, who, at 25, was the oldest of the four. Norman's mother was an aboriginal woman who died when he was two years old. The boy didn't see much of his father when he was growing up and after completing grade 12, Manger worked at a succession of jobs in northern Manitoba and in Winnipeg. But by 1971, he had not been working for a year or so, and he'd been drinking heavily. He didn't have a permanent home, and by his own admission, had turned into a bum. Like Lee Colgan, Dwayne Johnston was 18 in 1971. He had dropped out of high school to work for the CNR, He was also the member of a motorcycle gang which had frequent scrapes with the police. His parents had separated, and he boarded with a local family. Johnston apparently had virulent views on Aboriginal people. He frequently made racist comments to ridicule Aboriginal students in his school classes. Lee Colgan said of Duane, I've never seen anybody hate Native people so much in my life. No one but the four men in the car knows exactly what happened that night. The men maintained their pact of silence for over 15 years before police were able to put together sufficient evidence in order to lay a charge. The investigation was hampered in its early stage by significant police errors. In its middle stage, the investigation was allowed to become dormant. When it was renewed with vigor by Constable Urbanowski in 1983, a pattern of evidence emerged to link the men to the abduction of Betty Osborne. But even then, the admissible evidence which could be used to support the charges was not strong. For years, the police tried unsuccessfully to uncover and put together into a case something against the four men. Brian Johnson, a 17-year-old acquaintance of the men's, told the police he had been in Lee's car at about 1.30 in the morning on November the 13th with Lee, Norman, James and Gordon Buck, another acquaintance. Brian claimed he got out of the car because Lee was too drunk to drive and later James took over the wheel. Brian told police that he last saw the car with the boys in it sometime around 2 a.m. It was only shortly after this at 2.15 that Rebecca Ross saw her friend Betty Osborne for the last time. Sometime after 4 a.m. that morning, Philip McGilvery, a taxi driver returning from dropping two customers at the Guy Hill residence, followed a car along Highway 287 between the pump house and the turnoff at the Houghton Cottage. McGilvery told the police on November 17th of that year that the driver obviously was drunk and was zigzagging all over the road. As he came closer to the car, he felt he couldn't pass it because it was all over. When the car turned to enter the road to the Houghton Cottage, it almost went into the ditch. McGilvery also noticed something with red spots on it on the road about a quarter mile west of the entrance to the airport. In a later statement to police on December 1st, McGilvery described this as a paper or rag with red spots. Under hypnosis... McGilvery later remembered four of the six characters in the car's license plate. These closely matched the license number of the Colgan Chrysler. Urbanowski had suggested the hypnosis to the chagrin of his co-workers. However, it yielded correct results, impressing his superiors and showing his commitment to do whatever necessary to get results. Although the plates did come back as Ben Colgan, Lee's father which raised eyebrows in the RCMP office. As Ben was a well-respected businessman in the paw, his son did not share that reputation. When they came to examine Lee Colgan's car seven months later, the RCMP found a small spot of human blood on the back seat of the car. Under the rear seat, they found a piece of a brassiere clasp, which at one time was part of the Brazier found the day after the murder alongside Highway 287. The police also found under the rear seat some human hair with similar characteristics to Betty's hair. None of this evidence, however, was linked conclusively to Betty Osborne. The poor handling of McGilvery's evidence by the paw detachment was then followed by a major mistake. Rather than immediately seizing and examining the Colgan vehicle, the rural detachment decided to do nothing, relying instead on the information that a member of the town detachment had inspected the car in a routine check one evening, and that night was around the time of the murder. According to Urbanowski, the constable who conducted the spot check had reported only that he had looked in the back seat, had seen nothing unusual, and that he knew the operator of the vehicle. The operator was Lee Holgan. The RCMP were not certain when that check took place. No record of the check could be found. It could have been conducted as early as the night of the murder. It could have also happened before the murder occurred. Constable John Lyons, who checked the car, reported that he didn't think he knew there had been a murder when he looked at the car, and he stated quite firmly he did not know at the time that Colgan might have been a murder suspect. It now appears obvious that the check was not related to the murder at all, and was not connected to the province-wide request to check cars with the numbers 5342. It's difficult to understand why the rural detachment would refrain from what would be a normal follow-up on the excellent work they had done, just because an officer from the town detachment seemed to vouch for the owner of the car. No effort was made to do what had been requested of the other detachments, to determine the whereabouts of any vehicle with the numbers 5342 in the license on the night of the murder. Sergeant Grosnick, as the officer in charge of the rural detachment of the RCMP at the time of the murder and the officer in charge of the investigation, is considered responsible for the considerable error. He said that he believed that the automobile was examined adequately, When shown the exhibit, a memorandum from Constable Lyons of the town detachment indicating the cursory nature of the examination of the vehicle was conducted by Lyons in November, Grosnick agreed that the type of examination would not be sufficient. He acknowledged that once police were aware of the license number and the possible involvement of this vehicle, a much more intensive investigation was required. In spite of Grosnick's belief that a detailed examination of the vehicle took place, no such examination of the vehicle did. The failure to check the Colgan car adequately represented a very serious flaw in the investigation. In May 1972, after receiving an anonymous letter implicating Lee Colgan, James, and Norman, the RCMP finally obtained a search warrant where they seized the car and conducted a meticulous search. In the words of Urbanowski, in effect, we forwarded the entire interior of the vehicle to the lab in Regina. A small piece of brazier strap and some hair were found under the back seat. Analysis showed that the piece of the brazier strap came from the brazier that was found near the murder site, and although the hair could not be identified positively as being Betty's, it was found to be of a similar type. A small blood sample, which could not be identified positively, was found on the back seat, but no fingerprints of significance were found. Some of the RCMP witnesses suggested that the failure to examine the car immediately in December had no effect on the investigation. While it is speculation, it is possible that an early interview of Lee Colgan might have borne fruit, or that fingerprints or other evidence may have been found in the car. Had the order been given in November or December, more useful evidence might have been found, although it was clear that Lee Colgan did not clean the interior of the car thoroughly after the murder. It is possible that Colgan's father didn't know by November or December that his car had been used in a murder. If he had been asked for permission to search the car, presumably he would have agreed, having no reason to refuse. Had he refused then McGilvery's information would have been sufficient to support an application for a search warrant. Fingerprint or other evidence could have assisted the police greatly in bringing the case to trial. Don Knight, who was a member of the Paw Rule Detachment and was involved in the investigation at the time, said due to the cold, no fingerprints would have been left. However, the interior of the car that night might not have been that cold. And under hypnosis, McGilvery said the windows were frosted. That suggests the interior of the car was warm. Inspector Michael Cassidy, who's in charge of the RCMP identification services for British Columbia, appeared before an inquiry and he contradicted other officers on the question of the fingerprints. He said that fingerprints can often be obtained in cold weather. A hand that is warm in a glove particularly a hand with oil or blood on it, may leave a very clear print. He also claimed that the longer the time between the laying of the print and its examination, the less likelihood there is of obtaining a readable print. The chance is reduced after one month, it's further reduced after six months, and again after two years. He did not, however, suggest, as other officers had, that the prints could not have been obtained in this case. Overall, the evidence presented suggested that the failure to examine the car in December may very have well had a negative effect on the course of the investigation. Valuable evidence was lost. The police would have known at an earlier date that the victim had probably been in the car, and at least that Lee Colgan had been there. As well, while the evidence might not have warranted laying of charges, It would have allowed police to question Lee at an earlier time and to confront him with the strong evidence of his involvement. Had that occurred closer to the date of the murder, he might very well have agreed to talk to the RCMP and to testify. He was, after all, talking to others at the time about his presence at the scene. It's believed that Colgan was the weak link who might have cooperated with the police had he been handled properly. There was clearly a breakdown in the investigation and a serious mistake with respect to the examination of the vehicle that was particularly unfortunate due to the imaginative investigative work done by determining the identity of the vehicle. The arrival of an anonymous letter at the PAW detachment on May 3, 1972 represented a major breakthrough in the case. The note read, Sirs, The following information was related to persons in the fall of 1971 concerning the murder of a young lady, later found near a beach, near the Paw Manitoba. The story was related by Lee Colgan being in a state of intoxication and near tears that he had been driving his car accompanied by Jim Houghton and Norman Manger. There were two or three mentioned, but their names are forgotten. They had forced the girl into the car, where it was then driven to the murder site, and the girl was raped by all of them. She had threatened police action, and so she was then murdered using a screwdriver, punch, or similar instrument. Gordy Buck had seemingly witnessed the car returning from the beach in the early morning, and Lee Colgan lives in constant fear of information possibly being forwarded to local authorities. It's hoped... That the investigation by officers can produce results. The informants did not wish to identify as reprisals were threatened by Lee Colgan against the friends and families concerned. These men are all local to the area of the Paw Manitoba. The letter had been mailed in Marquette, Michigan on april twenty eighth of nineteen seventy two. Attempts to locate its author were unsuccessful until after Lee Colgan's arrest in nineteen eighty six when it was learned that it had been written by Catherine Dick, a fellow high school student, who had talked with Colgan shortly after the murder. Despite the highly relevant and important information contained in the letter, its contents were not admissible in proceedings because the author was unknown. While it might have been used to obtain a search warrant or to arrest the suspects, it could not have been used by itself to support a charge of murder More was needed. In their first inquiries following the receipt of this letter, the police quickly established that the three men named in it were known to associate together and that they had been at a dance at the Legion on the morning of the murder. And they had access to a white Chrysler with the license plate number BN-5342. Attempts to link three suspects with Betty Osborne proved unsuccessful, although it was discovered that Osborne and Colgan had been in one class together, At Margaret Barber Collegiate, sometime earlier. It was at this time, when going back through the records of the investigation, that the police realized that the Colgan car had not been checked properly earlier. The police were trying to be careful in order to preserve the element of surprise for later in the investigation. They checked the colors of Lee Colgan and James Elton's cottages to see if they matched the paint that was found on the Hanson screwdriver. They did not. The RCMP also started to inquire around town to see if any rumor similar to that contained in the anonymous letter was circulating, and they reasoned quite correctly that if one person had been told, so might others. On June 6th, first Lee and then Norman were interviewed. Both denied involvement and both declined to take a polygraph test. Norman told police that he was passed out in the washroom of a local hotel on the night of the murder. However, this alibi could not be verified. James had left town shortly after the murder, and his whereabouts were unknown to the RCMP. On June 15th, Brian Johnson told the RCMP that he had seen Lee, James, and Norman in Lee's Chrysler on the night of the murder. He informed the police that they had been drinking and that he left their company around 1 to 2 a.m. The RCMP then spoke with James Halton's parents in an attempt to locate him. By June 20th, the RCMP were becoming convinced that the family knew the identities of the three of those involved in the Betty Osborne murder. They then obtained a search warrant for the Colgan car and seized it. On June 23rd, an informant finally gave police the name of a fourth person, Dwayne Johnston. Johnston had been interviewed in December of 1971 because his name appeared on the list of persons who had purchased beer the evening before the murder and because he was on the list of persons receiving welfare assistance at the time. He told the police to speak to his lawyer, Darcy Bancroft. This had not raised police suspicion because they felt... Since Johnson was known to belong to a local motorcycle club, it was a typical response from him. In addition, he was known to be a friend of Bancroft's. Johnston was next interviewed on June 23rd of 1972. His response, Urbanowski said, was to play dumb. On June 29th, an informant told police the version of the murder which came out at the trial of James Houghton and Dwayne Johnson. Houghton and Colgan's cottages were checked again, this time using police dogs. On July 11th, the cottages were searched under a search warrant, and some paint and assorted clothing were seized, but no links to the murder of Betty Osborne were found. At the time the cottages were being searched, the police spoke with Bud Colgan, seeking permission to interview his son Lee. He refused and he also denied knowing where his car had been on the evening of the murder. Although, by this time, they were certain they were on the right track, the police still had no admissible link between the murder and the four suspects. In August, James Houghton returned to the PAW from British Columbia, where he had been looking for work. He, too, denied any knowledge or involvement, and also declined to take a polygraph test. By this time... Darcy Bancroft was acting for all four suspects, and he made certain that none of them would speak to police. He wrote letters demanding that the RCMP cease harassing his clients. The four suspects had erected a wall of silence between themselves and the police, and the investigation was at a standstill. In September of 1972, the RCMP sent four officers to the PAW, in an attempt to attain a breakthrough in the investigation. On September 21st and 22nd, Corporal Duncan and Constable Morlag, in an attempt to gain Norman's confidence, spent time drinking with him under the guise of being off-duty police officers that were looking for good hunting spots. Then, on September 23rd, those officers took Norman out to a lonely spot in the bush Past the Clearwater Lake Pump House to interview him. They pointed out to him that his alibi was not believable and asked him to tell them what really happened. Even though he feared the two officers were going to beat him, he did not admit to any knowledge of the murder beyond being in the car. Morlag convinced him to take a polygraph test and obtained a written consent from him. Then they drove back to town and Norman agreed to be available for two days later when a polygraph expert would arrive from Regina. In the meantime, these officers and other members of the RCMP team endeavored to keep an eye on him as they continued with their investigation. Upon arrival of the polygraph operator in the PAW, RCMP officers went to get Norman, who was in a hotel with members of a local motorcycle club. Before the police could speak to him, he eluded them by slipping out the back door with a friend of Dwayne's. He immediately spoke to Bancroft, who advised him not to take the polygraph. On September 26th, Bancroft wrote the RCMP on Manger's behalf, withdrawing the consent to the polygraph and telling them to stop harassing Norman Manger. Norman later said that he initially gave his consent because he was afraid of what the police officers would do to him if he refused. After months of being unable to obtain any real evidence, and with the investigation stagnating, Norman's willingness should have been considered a real breakthrough. Although he showed some reluctance to speak about what happened when Betty was picked up, he apparently was willing to discuss other events of the evening. Even if he were to have given only the names of the driver and the other occupants of the car, that would have laid the foundation for more pointed questioning of other suspects. Had he told the police about the activities of any of the suspects, that information might have been provided for the basis of criminal charges or an arrest. The RCMP were criticized later for not being prepared and not having Norman polygraphed immediately. On September 24th, the RCMP arrested Lee Colgan on an outstanding Wildlife Act warrant. While a friend was paying the fine, Duncan took Lee outside the detachment into a police car to speak with him. According to the officer, Lee seemed ready to discuss some aspects of the events of the night of the murder. Duncan recalled the conversation. I mentioned his car, his dad's car being seized and searched, and my comments to him at the time were he knew what had been found in it, and his comment was, oh yes, the brassiere and the blood. He also commented, well that doesn't prove anything he went on to say that he'd been all mixed up lately and that he would have to think about it i again mentioned the others involved and i wanted him to tell me for my own satisfaction that he had not been involved his reply was that he did not do it but he was alone he was scared that he would go to jail for 20 years their conversation was cut short by the intervention of a couple of Colgan's friends who came to the car. Also, on September 24th, Stewart and Morleg attempted to interview Dwayne Johnson. He refused to be interviewed and told the police to leave. The following day, Stewart and Copping made the first of two attempts to interview James Houghton. Houghton had declined to be interviewed without Bancroft present. Houghton acknowledges that Bancroft had been hired by his father before he returned from British Columbia. He did not remember signing a letter in September of 1972 requesting that the RCMP cease harassing him, but he admits that he must have done so. The letter read, As members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have persistently questioned me concerning the death which allegedly took place at Clearwater Lake last November, and as they have searched my premises, this is to confirm that I have retained Darcy Bancroft to act for me concerning the above. Further, on the evidence of the said Darcy Kenneth Bancroft, I am not willing to answer any questions put to me or in any way communicate with members of the RCMP or anyone other than my lawyer. Anyone wishing to ask me questions should put the questions in writing to the said Darcy Kenneth Bancroft, will provide answers to any questions that I feel should be answered after having legal advice concerning the questions. Signed, Jim Houghton. It's clear that the RCMP were not as persistent with James as they were with Norman or Lee, and it would appear that they did not attempt to interview James Morgan until after Lee testified in March of 1987. On September 26, after speaking with James for the second time, Stewart and Coping interviewed Lee's father at the government liquor store, of which he was the manager, and Bud Colgan told them that although Lee had been there, he, in Stewart's words, had not laid a hand on the girl. The officers also spoke to a number of other persons during their week in the Paw. They spoke to Arthur Fishman, who owned the store where Lee worked, as well as to Dennis Brownlee, a co worker there. No information of any value was obtained from these interviews. Having decided that nothing further could be achieved, the four officers returned to their own detachments on September 27th of that year. On October 1st, Warlag and Kopang attempted to locate Lee Colgan near Pukatawagan. That's where he was believed to be working on the railroad. On October 4th, they attempted once more to locate Norman Manger. Moorleg, this time alone, was in the PAW from October 17th to the 19th, apparently working on the Betty Osborne file. The intensity of the investigation diminished in its second phase as every other avenue further to the inquiry seemed to close to the police. Although the file remained open, little work was done after the end of October in 1972. Through the years, RCMP made some efforts to keep up the pressure on the suspects, particularly on Colgan and Manger. They interviewed them on a number of occasions, and they put the most pressure on Lee because they considered him the weak link. In December 1974, Darcy Bancroft died while visiting California. When Merleg learned of his death, he went to British Columbia to interview Lee once more. Lee was very hungover after having celebrated the birth of his first child the previous evening and he became hysterical when questioned about the case. Later, Moorleg attempted to interview Norman Manger in Winnipeg, but found him passed out. Still, later, another officer did interview Manger, who refused to discuss Osborne's murder. A promising source of evidence was ignored through the lapse of an unidentified officer in 1976. While filing a complaint for assault against her husband, Arlene Colgan informed the RCMP that Lee Colgan had told her he was involved in the murder. It may have been that the information was not new to the police, but even so, a follow-up of Arlene's complaint could have provided another opportunity for the police to question Lee Colgan. The opportunity, however, was missed. Also in 1976, after Colgan had returned to the PAW, he was arrested by Constable Archie McPherson on a warrant of committal for non payment of a Liquor Control Act fine. When he asked what he was being arrested for, McPherson told him that it was for first degree murder. Colgan's response was described by McPherson. He said, It's impossible. He kept reiterating the fact that it was impossible, that he was the weak link in the four, and as long as he stayed quiet, the other three would not say anything. McPherson said that Colgan left the Paw again shortly after this encounter. Colgan claimed that the police, from time to time, would send him screwdriver drinks in the bars of the Paw. Sheriff Gerald Wilson recalled that happening on one occasion when he was drinking with Colgan in 1977 or 78. In February 1977, the local Crown Attorney reviewed the file and decided that there was insufficient evidence to lay charges. In March, and then again in May of 1977, the file was reviewed by RCMP. It was noted by the reviewing officer that there were no new developments and no new avenues of the investigation had opened. In April of 1979, the file was transferred to Thompson. The file was reviewed there again, and it was decided to send the Criminal Information Services Manitoba in Winnipeg for a complete review and analysis. By this time, it occupied four full drawers of a filing cabinet, and the review took a year to complete. In 1981, the review was completed, and the file was returned to Thompson. The review recommended the resubmission of the physical evidence to see if more modern techniques could reveal additional information. It also advised certain charges against Colgan and his father, However, no charges were laid as a result of the review. Two constables worked on the file between 1981 and 1983, but apart from the special interest Morleg took in the file, almost nothing was accomplished during the second phase of the investigation. Constable Robert Urbanowski began his involvement with the investigation in 1983 by conducting a complete review of the file. He read it four or five times and checked the physical evidence to make sure it had been kept safe. He located all four suspects and interviewed all of the officers who had worked on the file in the past. This review took from July 1983 through March 1984. He then followed up on the recommendations of the Criminal Information Services Manitoba and resubmitted the evidence. However, no information was revealed that was new. Urbanowski also interviewed the two informants who had assisted the police in the summer of 1972. The memory of the first had all but failed by the time he was interviewed, even under hypnosis. He was unable to offer anything useful. The second refused to become involved in the investigation, claiming that he remembered nothing of what he had told police in 1972. By this time, it was October of 1984. In December of that year, Urbanowski submitted a plan to headquarters that called for him to work full-time on the case. Since he knew that the four suspects and their friends still talked about the crime, his plan included the use of wiretaps to obtain information which might be useful in bringing the four to justice. The wiretaps were carried out in Manitoba, Alberta, and British Columbia and required 11 full-time investigators as well as himself. The plan accounted for 7,000 staff hours during 1985. The first set of wiretaps was undertaken in May and led to the questioning of 38 persons. In January 1985, Annette Vito told the RCMP that Colgan had talked to her about the murder. Following leads generated by this statement, the police interviewed four more persons but without results. In May 1985, Colgan's ex-wife was interviewed and related the admissions that she had heard from Colgan during their marriage. On June 12, 1985, Urbanoski placed an article in the Opusquia Times, the local weekly newspaper in the PAW. The article read, The RCMP are requesting the public's assistance in the investigation of a murder which occurred over 13 years ago. On Saturday, November 13, 1971, the body of Helen Betty Osborne, 19, was found near Clearwater Lake. Osborne, a resident of the PAW and formerly of Norway House, had been attending school in the PAW at the time of the murder. She was last seen alive about 2 a.m. near the corner of 3rd Street and Edwards Avenue on the morning of her death. Police believed she had been lured into a vehicle and then taken to the Clearwater Lake area where she was brutally murdered. A light-colored automobile with Manitoba license plates was seen in the area where the body was located at the time of the murder. An RCMP spokesman said yesterday that police have terrific responses from the public on the case to date, but they're looking for more help from people in the paw in the surrounding area. We're not looking for a break in the case, he added, Police would like to hear anything about the incident people may have seen or heard. No matter how trivial it is, we'd like to hear it. Sometimes we can use bits of information to tie things together. The spokesman said many people have been afraid to come forward with information at the time or intimidated by peer pressure, or may have even thought their information was too insignificant to mention. Police are even interested in learning the names of the people who may know something about the incident. Anyone with information which might prove useful is asked to contact the PAW Rule RCMP Detachment or their local police office. Anyone supplying information on this or any other matters will have their identity kept confidential. Urbanowski admitted that he included in the article information that suggested that many persons had already come forward a fact which was not true at the time. He did this to assure those with information that they would not be alone were they to go to the police. It was, he said, to put their minds at ease. This resulted in four more persons being interviewed. As a result of the information gathered through these techniques, Urbanowski was able in December 1985 to seek permission to lay charges against Colgan and Johnston. Charges were authorized in August of 1986. In an attempt to gather further information, Urbanowski submitted another plan, which included more wiretaps, using 10 full-time investigators for six weeks. This required using another 4,000 staff hours. These investigators listened to phone conversations of the suspects in order to gauge the reaction to the arrest of Colgan and then Johnston. The second set of wiretaps began on September 30th, 1986. Colgan was arrested on October 3rd. As a result of a national news media blitz at the time of Colgan's arrest, two more persons came forward with information. One of these was Catherine Dick, the author of the anonymous letter, which had first given police the names of the three suspects. She was then living in Saskatchewan, Johnston was arrested on October 27th, and on November 23rd, the wiretaps were terminated. As a result of the wiretaps, an additional four persons were interviewed. During the course of the investigation, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal persons were questioned. There is a perception in the PA and in Manitoba generally, that the police act differently towards Aboriginal people than they do toward non-Aboriginal persons. Some of the interviews show that Aboriginal people involved in this case were not treated with the same difference extended to non-Aboriginal informants. Cornelius Bagetti was Betty's boyfriend, and he was a member of the Matthias Kalam Indian Band at Puttukawagan. He was 17 and attending school in the Paw at the time of the murder. Because he had seen Betty during the evening before she was killed, the police came to the house where he was living and took him and his roommates to the RCMP detachment. He didn't know at the time that Betty was dead, and thought something had happened to a member of his family in Pukatawagan. Police did not tell him, or the family with whom he was boarding, of the purpose of his trip to the detachment, nor did they seek permission of the person with whom he was boarding, or his parents in Pukatawagan, or anyone else before interviewing him. The RCMP claimed to have obtained consent from an Indian Affairs Department counsellor, but no one believes that they did. This treatment is in marked contrast to their interview with Lee Colgan in June of 72. At the time, he became a suspect. that time, RCMP sought permission of Colgan's father before attempting to conduct a formal interview, even though the younger Colgan was 18 and parental consent wasn't required by law. After arriving at the detachment, Bagetti was taken into a small, dimly lit room, in which there were four or more plainclothes officers. Without informing him of Osborne's death, one of the officers showed him a photograph of Osborne's badly battered face. Bagetti fainted. When he was revived, he was questioned for some twenty minutes to half an hour, and then released. This was a heartless method of interrogation, and it was unfair when dealing with a 17-year-old. Later, Baghetti was pulled from a school volleyball game, and again taken to the detachment and questioned. No justification was offered by the RCMP for their failure to respect his rights. It's accepted that Baghetti might have been considered a suspect at first, since he was known to have a disagreement with Betty the evening before her death. That being said... It must have become clear to the RCMP very quickly that Bagetti was not involved. They've never offered evidence that they had any other reason to suspect Bagetti. This treatment is considered unacceptable standards of police conduct. Others also must share the blame for the manner in which Aboriginal students like Cornelius Bagetti were treated. Indian Affairs officials did not fulfill their responsibilities in properly protecting students' interests. They did not inform the parents of Betty Osborne's friends of the traumatizing effects of the murder or the subsequent unauthorized police interrogations. Another victim of police mistreatment was 18-year-old Annalise Dumas. She was born in Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan and raised in Pukatawagan. Dumas was another aboriginal friend of Betty's. She was also boarding in the Paw while attending school. The RCMP took her from the house at which she was boarding, but they did not tell her why she was wanted at the detachment. She also didn't know at that point that Osborne had been murdered. When they arrived at the station, another of the student friends of Betty's told her that someone had been found dead. Two officers took her to the car and drove out to a scheduled spot in the bush, where they started to ask questions and asked her about her whereabouts at the time of Osborne's death. When she became afraid and tongue-tied, Dumas was thrown upon the hood of the car. She started to cry, and the two officers then apologized and took her home. During this interrogation, Dumas did manage to tell the officers where and with whom she had been. Later that evening, the two officers returned and asked that she go to the morgue to look at Osborne's body. She did not recognize her friend, and she said... Well, there was someone there, but to me it wasn't Betty. The experience was so traumatic for this 18-year-old that she soon left school and eventually had to undergo counseling. She didn't return to school for four years. The treatment of this young woman was brutal and insensitive. The RCMP officers appear to have shown no understanding or sympathy. It doesn't even appear that they determined how close a relationship there was between the two friends. Showing her the mutilated body of Betty was not only insensitive, but also unnecessary. Surely, the effect on a young woman of seeing a mutilated body must have been obvious to them. Also, it was not acceptable to take her out in the country to conduct an interview. They denied that it happened. However, it's widely believed that Annalise was being truthful. It was clearly an established police practice to take suspects out of town for the purpose of questioning them. As Kopang said when speaking of another suspect, if we want them to confess, we've got to put a little stress on them. Duncan said it was common to interview people by taking them into the country. He said that was done to get people away from others who might see them being interviewed. He said they might be taken into a bush or a private spot to talk to. There was no policy of the force on this matter. Rather, it seemed left to the ingenuity of the investigating officer. There is a striking contrast between the way the three non Aboriginal suspects were dealt with and the manner in which the Aboriginal informants were treated. The parents of Houghton and Colgan were consulted before a formal interview was attempted. Their wishes that their sons not be interviewed were largely respected. Neither Colgan nor Houghton were taken into the bush to be questioned. But Manger and Dumas both were, and both are Aboriginal. Dumas, it should be noted, is also a woman. While there is no sympathy for Norman Manger, it's clear that the RCMP acted improperly towards him and Dumas. This apparent difference in treatment suggests that the RCMP tailored their treatment in accordance with the race, sex, or class of the person with whom they're dealing. It's been noted that Cornelius Spaghetti showed no animosity towards the police, in what can only be seen as complete generosity. He said that he had no complaint about the way he was treated. He did say, however, that he would not allow the police to treat his own children the way he was treated by the RCMP in 1971. After Betty Osborne was identified shortly after midnight on November 14th, at 1.56pm that day, the RCMP ruled detachment in the PA, called the detachment in Norway House. That's Osborne's home community. Sergeant Alan Hayden-Luck, the officer in charge at Norway House, told Justine Osborne about her daughter's death. Hayden-Luck, who at the time had 19 years of service with the RCMP, had been in charge of the detachment since 1969. He had known Justine Osborne for about six months before, because she used to help his wife around the house occasionally. During that time, he stated that Justine Osborne and his wife became quite friendly, and he felt that he knew her fairly well. Hayden Luck went to Justine Osborne's home and broke the news to her. He did not remember if there was anyone else there at the time, but he said that he thought there may have been. Osborne herself said her 18-year-old son Isaiah was there. She told the officer that she would go to a friend's house. Hayden Luck told her that they would bring her daughter's body to Norway House as soon as they could make the arrangements. Justine Osborne was not critical of the manner in which the officer informed her of her daughter's death, which is not surprising As she herself made clear, she was in a state of shock after being told that her daughter had been murdered. When asked what Hayden Luck had said after informing her of the murder, she said, I don't remember. I don't care. I didn't want him to take me anywhere. I told him that I would go on my own down to my neighbors, who knew. I told him that I would go myself. Now, much progress has been made in the area of assistance and support for the victims of crime and their families. The lack of any support for Justine Osborne only highlights the need for such programs. It was 16 years until Justine heard from the police when they came to inform her that they pressed charges against three of the four men that were involved in her daughter's murder. The RCMP was later criticized for not, at a minimum, informing the chief and council about updates in the case so Justine could be kept up to date with any news in the case of her daughter. Here's the disconnect. Many people acknowledge that everybody in town knew who the assailants were. Immediately after Betty's murder, a small number of folks were aware and over time those rumors permeated the white community in town. However, The Indigenous community was unaware of who could have killed Betty. Within days of the murder, Lee was spilling his guts to Catherine Dick. Annette Vito recalled she believed James and Duane were involved within a week of the murder. Lee Colgan's ex-wife claimed to have heard rumors the summer following the murder. That was long before she and Lee were married. Then, in 1977, Sheriff Gerald Wilson who knew Lee through activities at the Legion, heard Colgan's story directly from him. Kathy Phillips, a civilian employee of the RCMP, was told the story by Lee two years later, and she claimed she didn't come forward because she is not a constable. The rumors didn't stop the townspeople from talking to the boys and their parents or inviting them out to parties and dinners, Sunday barbecues. They just never mentioned that very unfortunate evening. Arthur Fishman, who was the owner of the clothing store where Lee Colgan worked, testified that within six months of Betty Osborne's murder, Lee told him of his involvement in the killing. In fact, he claimed Lee mentioned it several times over the years. This didn't encourage him to come forward with the information, and in fact, it didn't even lead to Lee's dismissal from the clothing store. This says something directly about the relationship between the community and the police in the 1970s. The death of Betty Osborne was a brutal expression of violence. She was the victim of vicious stereotypes born of ignorance and aggression when she was picked up by the four men looking for sex. Her attackers saw the young aboriginal girl as promiscuous and open to the enticement through alcohol or violence. They believed that the young Aboriginal woman was an object with no human value beyond sexual gratification. Cruising for sex was a common practice in the pond in 1971. Young Aboriginal women were often under age and they were the usual objects of the practice. And the RCMP did not feel the practice needed any particular vigilance. Violence against women has been thought to be a private affair. Assaults on women were not treated with the seriousness which they deserved. Betty Osborne was one of the victims of this despicable attitude. Chief Laughlin of the PAW band suggested the fact that Osborne was aboriginal and a female contributed to the delay in bringing the perpetrators to justice. Betty's mother thought that if her daughter had been a white woman, there would have been more interest in solving the crime. In any case, Betty's murder was a racist and sexist act, and she would be alive today had she not been an aboriginal female. On March 26, 2008, the Osborne family again grieved, as her brother was found slain in an apartment in downtown Winnipeg. Kelvin John Osborne was Winnipeg's 6th homicide of 2008. As a way to remember Helen Betty Osborne, the town of Norway House named the school after her, and a formal apology from the Manitoba government was issued by Gordon McIntosh, Manitoba's Minister of Justice, on July 14th of the year 2000. The apology addressed the failure of the province's justice system in the Osborne's case. The province created a scholarship in Osborne's name for Aboriginal women. At the time of Colgan's arrest, his lawyer, Donald McIver, told the police that Colgan eventually would reveal to them his role in the murder. Just prior to the preliminary hearing, Colgan offered to give testimony in return for immunity from prosecution, and that offer was accepted. As a result of his statement, it became possible to charge Houghton, who was arrested on March 15, 1987. With that, the role of police in the case gave way to the Crown Prosecutor's Office. The final involvement of the RCMP in the investigative aspects of the case occurred on November 10th and 11th, 1987, when they located Norman Manger and convinced him to testify at the trial of Houghton and Johnston. This brought to an end an investigation marred by significant errors. While the RCMP put a good deal of dedicated effort into solving the case, Those errors considerably delayed its resolution. Had it not been for the determination of Constable Robert Urbanowski, charges might never have been laid against anyone. The only statement made by the suspects and known to the police by the end of 1972 was an admission made by Lee Colgan. This admission was made to Corporal Keith Duncan to the effect that he had been at the scene but had done nothing. He gave no details of who else was present or what was done. Much of the evidence about what occurred that night comes from Lee Colgan, an admitted alcoholic, drug abuser, wife-beater, and thief. Investigators believe that Lee was not fully forthright and honest in his testimony to police or at the trial of James and Duane. It isn't believable that Betty Osborne's treatment and injuries came at the hands of one man alone. Lee's evidence about Dwayne's actions that night seem reasonable, but it's believed that Lee withheld facts from his testimony, most likely due to the history of growing up virtually across the street from one another, and that the family cottages on Clearwater Lake, where the two families hung out. James was Lee's old babysitter and good friend. He was not just a casual drinking buddy. What is clear from the evidence is that all four men decided to pick up an Indian woman for sex. They approached Osborne, and when she refused them, she was abducted. In the car, she was physically assaulted by at least Duane and Lee. Her autopsy may not have indicated rape, however, it is clear that she was sexually assaulted. At the James cabin, the beating continued with Duane and one or two others involved. At the pump house where the murder took place, Dwayne and James got out of the car. All four men participated to some extent in the events leading up to the murder. Norman may have been so intoxicated that he could have avoided a criminal conviction for his involvement, but all four men are morally, if not legally responsible for Osborne's murder. It was not believed that it was Dwayne alone who assaulted Betty at the pump house dragged her into the bush and hid her clothes and left her. At least one other person assisted Duane while he was out of the car at the pump house. The first officers at the scene of the crime remained convinced that two persons dragged the victim into the bush. There were many tracks of footprints from the parking place of the car and the place where apparently it was first intended to leave the body of the victim. The evidence was that the two sets of bloodstained footprints led back from the place where the body was finally left to the place where the car had been parked. All of this suggests that more than one person participated. The evidence against Dwayne Johnston included an admission made by Johnston at a party in the spring of 1972, which did not come to police attention until 1985 additional evidence against johnson came from a woman who testified at his preliminary hearing and trial about references he made to his involvement in the murder when she appeared the witness was concerned for her safety and asked not to be identified she said that one evening when she was 14 she had gone to the home of an acquaintance six people were there drinking beer and talking when the witness arrived and perhaps 12 were present by the time she left Among those at the gathering was Dwayne Johnston. The witness told the court that at one point in the evening, Dwayne stood up. He made stabbing motions and said, I picked up a screwdriver and I stabbed her and I stabbed her and I stabbed her. And then he laughed. The witness said that shortly after Johnston was heard to say, Do you know what it feels like to kill someone? It feels great. At the time, this witness was threatened immediately by a friend of Duane's and told never to mention what he had said. She did not come forward until the RCMP placed an article in the Opusquia Times seeking information. This evidence in and of itself did not implicate Duane in the crime since the name of Betty Osborne was never mentioned, nor were the date, the place, or event identified. There was no direct link between any of the evidence against Dwayne and the Osborne's murder, nor at the time of his arrest was there any other admissible evidence linking Dwayne Johnston to the murder. The police had learned Johnston's name from an informant who had heard rumors around town. Rumors are not admissible in trial. Lee Colgan's evidence, given after his immunity in 1987, was what linked Johnston clearly to Osbournes' murder. Dwayne Johnston did not testify at his trial for the murder of Betty Osborne, nor did he ever make a statement to the police. When called before an inquiry by the Aboriginal Justice Implementation Commission, he refused either to be sworn in or to give testimony. He was aware that previous testimony, both at the trial and at their hearings, indicated that he was primarily responsible for the murder he was urged to avail himself of the opportunity to tell his side of the story and he remained adamant that he would not testify. Dwayne Johnston's refusal to testify had certain consequences which are worth noting. There's only one version of events of that evening, that of Lee Colgan. Colgan's evidence may of course be self-serving but he laid blame firmly on Johnston's shoulders. Johnston knew that well he assumed that Colgan changed his evidence at the trial somewhat to assist his friend, James Houghton. But there's no way of knowing to what extent. The commission, however, think that he changed his testimony so as to place more guilt on the shoulders of Dwayne Johnston than should properly be there. Lee Colgan's story has not varied in portraying Duane as the main instigator of Osborne's murder. As far as examination of the facts is concerned, Dwayne's refusal to testify leaves Colgan's version of events unchallenged. Johnston's failure to refute Lee's testimony allows one to conclude that it generally is accurate in relation to Dwayne's role. It reinforces the correctness of the jury's decision when they convicted Johnston. Lee's evidence was adamant that Norman Manger was heavily intoxicated the evening of Osborne's murder. Norman himself has said he was so drunk he has very little recollection of the events of the evening. At the trial of James and Dwayne, he admitted to being in the car with Colgan, Houghton, and Johnston. He claimed neither to remember how much he had to drink when he got into the car, nor how much he had while he was in the car. It is not known if he was following the advice of the original attorney telling him to say nothing. However, he was aware of the events that evening and remained silent about the details. The police questioned Norman a number of times during the 16 years of the investigation, until he agreed to testify at the trial of James Houghton and Dwayne Johnston. He denied having any knowledge of the murder. On June 6, 1972, when he was first questioned about the night of Betty's murder, Norman Manger gave the alibi that he was passed out in a bar's washroom, but now he admits that that was false. It was not until November 11th of 1987, just before the start of the trial of James Houghton and Wayne Johnston, that Norman Manger admitted being in the car that night. In his statement that day, Norman Manger told the police, I was pretty drunk that night. I ended up at the dance. Somehow I ended up going for a ride. There were three other guys there with me and there was more liquor being drunk at this time also. I don't recall picking up the girl or where she was picked up, I imagine she was picked up in town. The next thing I can remember is her being pulled through a snowbank. It was dark and I had this terrible feeling of, oh my god, what's happening here? I got this awful fear and I covered my ears or something to try not to think about what was happening. I was in the front seat on the passenger side. Even though he finally did admit that he was there in the car that evening, Norman Manger still insisted at the trial and at the inquiry that he had no recollection beyond that. He did acknowledge that he learned something more of the events of that evening through other people and through rumors that were circulating in town. Norman's evidence as to his role that evening is consistent with that of Lee Colgan. Colgan's evidence at the trial of Houghton and Johnston placed Norman in the car and drunk from the time when Betty was picked up until the time she was killed. Lee also said that when the assault was taking place, Norman Manger was cowering under the dashboard of the car. Investigators were not convinced, however, that Norman had told him all that he remembered of that night. Lee's evidence was that the intention of all four was to pick up a girl with whom to have sex. This implicates Norman in the abduction only if he were able to form the intention to commit the act. When he talked with the constable, Hank Moorleg in September, 1972, Norman at one point seemed willing to talk about what happened at the lake and to take a polygraph test. He was not prepared to talk about what had happened earlier in the evening. No one really knows what he might've said since he changed his mind after seeing his lawyer, Darcy Bancroft, before the police could administer a polygraph. Because he was willing to discuss the murder with Morleg, presumably Norman knew more about it, yet he was unwilling to talk about the abduction. It seems likely he knew more about these events than he led investigators to believe. All we can say with absolute certainty is that he was present and in a drunken state. Lee Colgan told a number of people about his presence during the abduction and murder, In November 1971, very shortly after the murder, he told Catherine Dick of his involvement and mentioned the names of James and Norman. Lee said that a fourth man was involved, but he didn't remember his name. It was Dick in May of 1972 who sent an anonymous letter to police, which first gave them the names of three participants. In the spring or summer of 1972, Lee Colgan told a young woman who preferred not to be named when testifying that he and some others had picked up a squaw at the Cumberland block and had taken her out to the lake for a gangbang. There, he told this informant, Dwayne Johnston had stabbed Betty with a screwdriver. In September of 1972, when questioned by Corporal Duncan, Lee admitted that he had been at the scene but that he had done nothing. Lee obviously had told his father something by September since Bud Colgan admitted to Corporal Dennis Stewart and Corporal Charles Coping that at the time, his son knew what had happened, but in Stewart's word, had not laid a hand on the girl. Before Lee's marriage in 1973, his mother insisted that he tell his prospective wife of his involvement in Betty's murder. In 1976, Arlene Demings, who was by then separated from Lee, told the police... During their three-and-a-half-year marriage, he often spoke of the murder when he was drunk. In September of 1977, Lee discussed the murder with Sheriff Gerald Wilson. The two had met up at the Legion Club Room and later went outside to Wilson's camper for a drink. Lee was upset because a man who he assumed was a police officer had been sending screwdriver drinks to his table. During their conversation, Lee gave Wilson details of the abduction and confirmed the identity of the other men in the car when she was picked up. In 1978, Lee also told Kathy Phillips, a civilian employee of the RCMP, about the murder, and that he had been in the car. Morlag, who retained an interest in the file following his first work on it in 1972, said there were other informants who had heard admissions from Colgan, but they wouldn't agree to testify in court. Lee Colgan continued to claim that although he was there, he had done nothing. Annette Vito gave a statement to the police in which she said that on December 1st, 1984, Lee said to her, I can tell you exactly what time she died and where. Annette told the police that Lee added he, James, Norman, and Dwayne had picked up Betty at Cumberland Block near the Legion. She told police, He told me that they killed her at the airport and then went to the pump house. Norman, he told her, was passed out in the back at the time. In this statement, too, Lee suggested that he remained in the car while the murder took place. Annette told police that Lee said Dwayne came back for the screwdriver. Annette did not testify on this point at the preliminary hearing and did not testify at all during the trial. Her reliability was suspect due to the inconsistencies in her recollection. She remembered being stopped by a car and talking to the occupants on the evening of the murder around the same time as Brian Johnson saw them. She, however, believed that it was Colgan's brother Rick driving his own car with James, Norman, and Duane as the occupants. Clearly, she was mistaken on several points regarding the car and who was in it, and it was Lee's father's car that Lee Colgan was driving with James and Duane as passengers. None of Lee Colgan's admissions implicates him directly in Osborne's murder. His statement to Annette strongly suggests that he knows much more than he has admitted, but it does not contain an admission that he participated in the murder. When Lee Colgan was charged with murder on October 3rd, 1986, he did not stand trial, until his immunity and subsequent statement, Colgan didn't admit circumstances that might have led to charges relating to the abduction of Osborne and the manner in which she was treated in the car. His only admission was as earlier he was there. James Houghton has never made any admissions regarding the events of November 12th until Lee Colgan agreed to testify the only evidence linking him to Betty Osborne's murder was the fact that Brian Johnston and Annette Vito placed him in Lee Colgan's car on the evening of November 12th. That alone would not have been sufficient to support charges for a conviction against him. In some of his statements to others, Lee Colgan had mentioned James Houghton's name, but such evidence could not have been used against Houghton. It's long been the law in Canada that a statement of one's accused person can be used only against him or her and not against others. These many admissions would have been evidence only against him and not against the other man. There were no Aboriginal persons on the jury which tried James Houghton and Dwayne Johnston. All the Aboriginal persons who were called for jury duty were challenged preemptorily by Johnston's counsel. A systematic exclusion of Aboriginal persons from a jury in an area where Aboriginal persons make up such a large population were very troubling. 54 persons were called from the panel in the Osborne murder case before the jury was complete. Of these, Six were aboriginal, and all were challenged by Greg Brodsky, Duane's lawyer, and did not sit on the jury. Johnston's lawyer used all of his 20 peremptory challenges, and James' lawyer used 19 of his 20. The result was that there were no aboriginal persons on the jury. This caused public concern that racism played a part in the trial. The jury in such an indigenous community seemed to not be represented. At trial, Lee told the court that the day after the murder, he met James and the two of them discussed the events of the previous evening. Lee was asked what was said and he replied, just that we should keep it quiet for now. Norman said much the same thing. After he told the court that he and Lee agreed to keep it quiet, he was asked if he had spoken to James about the incident and what had been said. He replied, it was similar to the same thing, Just like we were all in it, even if it's circumstantial. The evidence, kind of like it happened, but just to keep it quiet, I guess. Apart from this, there is no evidence that James ever talked to anyone about his role in the abduction and the murder of Betty Osborne. Like Duane, James didn't testify at his trial, and when he was called to answer to the questions about his activities that evening... He said he had no recollection. He did not deny that he was involved. He would say only that he did not remember. At no time did he say he was not there or that he was not involved in the murder. The evidence of James Houghton was much more revealing than he intended it to be. Clearly, he was unwilling to challenge Lee Colgan's story and testimony. It was only in relation to the events of the night that James claimed his memory was faulty. He said he could not remember speaking with Darcy Bancroft, the lawyer who claimed to be representing him after he had become a suspect. He said he could not remember signing the letter which Bancroft sent to the police on September 26th of 1972, demanding that the police desist from harassing him. He also would have it be believed that he remembered nothing of his discussions with the RCMP about taking a polygraph on September 25th, 1972. He displayed a good memory of other matters, but suggested he has no memory of any matter even remotely connected with the murder or the events that followed. He claimed that although he knew he was a suspect in the murder along with Lee, Norman, and Duane, he at no time discussed the murder with the other suspects and made no inquiries about the incidents of that night. No one believed him. It was satisfied that James Houghton was there during the abduction and murder of Betty Osborne, He knows what happened that night, and his claim to have no recollection of that night was a complete fabrication. Lee's evidence was that James was the driver of the car which pulled over next to Betty. James was a party to the plan to take Betty Osborne to the lake for sex. Lee said that it was James who drove the car out of town to his parents' cabin, and then to the pump house. From Lee's evidence at that trial, it's clear Betty Osborne was alive when James got out of the car at the pump house and dead when he got back in. The drag marks and footprints on each side of the body made it clear that two people dragged Betty to the spot where she was left. The jury acquitted James Houghton of the charge of murder. The reason he was acquitted is not known, and the law forbids anyone from asking a juror why a particular decision was reached. It's assumed that either the evidence satisfied the jury that James Houghton was not a party to the murder or that they were not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that he was. An unwillingness to rely on the evidence of Lee Colgan may have been a factor. Regardless, he's been acquitted of murder and can no longer be tried on that charge. Dwayne Archie Johnston was convicted of second-degree murder, and he was released after serving 10 years of a life sentence. One man served 10 years for the brutal murder of Betty Osborne, and three others didn't see a day in prison. To imagine the suffering of the Osborne family and their friends is unimaginable. Then to add salt to the wound, in 2008, tragedy struck the family again. Morris Richard McConnell, 59, pleaded guilty in October 2010 to the second-degree murder in connection to the grisly stabbing and beating of the death of Kevin John Osborne, who was 42 in a West Broadway area apartment. Osborne, a gay man who was known on the street by the name Rose, was killed after going with McConnell to his apartment. There, Osborne propositioned McConnell for sex. McConnell responded by stabbing him with a knife and beating him with a hammer. According to the facts of the case read in court by the Crown Attorney Scott Cooper, Osborne suffered numerous injuries and had his throat slit. The Court of Queen's Bench Associate Chief Justice Glenn Joyle singled out the crime for its gruesome brutality. The act itself is so vicious and so purposeful that it really defies rational explanation, Joel said. Justice Joel agreed to a plea deal between the Crown and McConnell's lawyer. The sentence means McConnell will not be eligible for parole until 10 years have passed from the date of his arrest on March 6th, 2008. Court heard that the Crown didn't believe the killing should be classified as a hate crime, but instead, one where McConnell's sexual confusion led him to react in anger at being propositioned. His own sexual issues may have put him in a position where this event occurred, Cooper told to Joyle, This was an act committed as a result of self-loathing. I disagree. Killing someone for being gay is more than just a hate crime. In this day and age, words alone are considered hate crimes. To commit such a gruesome murder because you've simply been propositioned is cruel and unusual. To say his sexual orientation put Osborne in the position to be murdered is particularly insensitive, especially considering the prosecution in Betty's trial claimed that she was a native girl walking alone late at night and could have done more to prevent her death. If I try to imagine Betty's mother's reaction to these events, my head explodes. The killers of two of her children are given excuses because one was a female and one was a gay man. They put themselves in a position. It's inexcusable and almost philistine to imply, never mind publicly claim it. It shows that we have a long way to go in breaching the injustice our Indigenous community suffers, and it illustrates why there's so much suspicion and fear of our justice system by our Indigenous community. Even in the case of both siblings, their sexual orientation, and even their simple gender, made them targets, and I can't help but wonder if both siblings would have been granted fair justice in Manitoba if they weren't indeed Native. McConnell told police he had no real memory of what happened to Osborne. He does remember hitting him with a hammer and seeing a lot of red. The crime was discovered after McConnell went to another apartment in the block and told a witness, I think I've done something bad.